Support for Motley Fool Money comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Rule Breakers and Supernova, Aaron Bush, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Best-selling author David Kirkpatrick is our guest this week, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with sports retail. Shares of Nike are hovering close to a two-year low after a first-quarter report that included profits falling 24%. And Jason, you look at all the coverage out there, and there is a pretty healthy dose of pessimism in this regard, that this report from Nike is not a bump in the road. This seems to be a trend that a lot of people think is going to continue for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, definitely not a bump in the road. And I think now at least we can say, well, this isn't just an Under Armour thing. I mean, it, we're seeing across the all of sporting retail, every every party in the value chain there is having uh, some trouble. I think the big story with Nike right now is North American headwinds are likely to persist for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's just a difficult retail environment and a changing retail environment. Now, with that said, that's okay because Nike's a big company, very well diversified, and they make about 55% of their revenue outside of North America. So, all in all, they will be fine. I think the market generally has some concerns on some of the goals that management has set for themselves a little bit further down the road. They had an investor presentation a few months back where they set some goals for 2020, looking to target $50 billion in sales by 2020 and for $16 billion of that to be in direct to consumer. Now, the strategy to direct to consumer is is exactly what they need to be doing, and we're seeing Adidas and Under Armour doing the same things. I think that fifty billion target is probably a little bit lofty. I'd be surprised to see them get there. And and we we were modeling off some more conservative numbers in million dollar portfolio when we added Nike a few months back. That said, the direct to consumer business was up eleven percent, online sales up nineteen percent, their comp store growth is up five percent. I think the bigger worry for players in this space, it's your Dick Sporting Goods, your Foot Lockers, obviously Sports Authority um, has already had to file. Uh, that's the toughest part in this in this value chain, and I think that's why we're seeing Nike and Under Armour uh, all making such big investments in direct-to-consumer. I agree. It's, it really is all about the traditional retail channel that we've seen affect so many brands. And I just think with with Nike, as Jason said, I mean this is this is a brand with sort of everlasting qualities. It's got a global presence, um, and you know. Depending on how how long this North American malaise with retail lasts, it could go on for a long longer. But I'd say Nike at a two-year low at the valuation we we're looking at today, we actually like it in million-dollar portfolio a lot. The good thing about the direct-to-consumer market is that in the long run, that should boost the margins of the company over time. So even though we are seeing some shorter-term worries with margins, how things are trending are actually positive if you play it out over a long period of time. Of course, that opens up. Other problems such as Nike might not have as much control over the all the consumer touch points, um, but as for the the financial profile of the company, it it should be getting better. It's also interesting to see how they're 
sort of making this pivot to this direct-to-consumer. I mean, on the one hand, in North America and whatnot, with these sort of traditional established uh, retail markets, more brick-and-mortar focused, they're having to kind of pivot into a new strategy. Whereas, in the emerging markets, where they're really just getting started, they're building this part of the business with more of a digital uh, sort of nature from the very start. So, it's just it's interesting to see the difference between the two markets and in the established versus the emerging. And I think it's kind of neat to see they're really building that business for the future in these emerging markets in in taking some of those lessons and bringing them over into the to the more established markets like here. One of Warren Buffett's more colorful quotes about business is that airlines are so bad that if a capitalist had been present at Kitty Hawk, he would have done his successors a huge favor by shooting Orville down. <laughs> oh, how times have changed, gentlemen. This week Doug Parker, the CEO of American Airlines said, and I quote, I don't think we're ever going to lose money again. We have an industry that's going to be profitable in good times and bad. Boy, Maddie, that is really <laughs> leaving no wiggle room whatsoever. Are things that good, not just for American Airlines, but for the industry writ large? Well, I don't know about never losing money again. I'm sure they will find ways to lose money again. But like railroads 15 years ago, when Buffett was getting into railroads, um, I do think there's been a shift, and it's a major shift. And I think. You know, as investors, we look for places in the market that are cheap, neglected, you know, undervalued. Airlines have been like that for decades. Um, but with the consolidation in the industry, you have the four top airlines now uh, controlling 80% of, of tickets. You have the ability, the new ability, to charge fees for luggage, seat preferences, food, entertainment that really wasn't there before in, in, in pricing. And the biggest story is just, I just think, the secular downtrend in oil prices. I think one of the reasons the CEO of American Airlines is making that statement is because he sees a future of much lower oil prices. For, for Forever, that was the biggest operating cost for airlines, was fuel prices. If those are coming down and airlines, airplanes themselves are more efficient, that does paint a more profitable future. Uh, Morningstar just came out with a recent report that I found interesting, um, and they kind of agree with the sentiment by American Airlines CEO in saying, um, even in a recession or or the aftermath of a shock like a terrorist event, or those things used to really cause terrible havoc for the airlines. Well, now they think even in those uh, environments they're going to be profitable. So there's agreement there. It's not just a boom and bust industry anymore. So I have to say I think. It is a time to look at airlines. I mean, never losing money, that is a very bold <laughs> statement. I imagine at some point or another, they whip out the old non-GAAP card or adjusted earnings or whatever if they have a, you know, a less than stellar quarter. But yeah, I mean, that's never losing money. That just seems to be a very bold statement to me for, for a historically tough, tough investment. Well, I don't know Doug Parker, and I'm not a shareholder <laughs> of American Airlines, but I was just trying to think, wait, any stock that I own, any company that I'm a part owner of, would I want that CEO to come out and say something like that? Like, you know, Howard Schultz, and Star- he's not running Starbucks anymore, but like, even if you're an Apple shareholder, do you want Tim Cook coming out and saying something like that? I'm a it- bit more of an under promise and over deliver guy, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> the hottest IPO in a while hit Wall Street this week. Roku, the maker of products for streaming TV services, went public at $14 a share, and in just two days, it doubled. It doubled, Aaron. I, I mean, is this hype of the highest order, or is this warranted in your mind? I do not think it is warranted. I do think <laughs> it is hyped, and I, I think that it that the IPO was underpriced. So some of the the pop that we're seeing probably isn't as justified. It just makes it look better than it is. 
Um, I mean, when I look at Roku the business, I do not see a fantastic business model. And I think it's in a pretty tough evolutionary position. Gross margins are only about 40%. Free cash flow is barely positive. It really doesn't make money off of the devices itself. And um, obviously, that's not good enough to be a worthwhile business. So the company is pursuing revenue deal shares with content providers, pay-per-view revenue, even advertising. And, and so when I see a company like Roku start pursuing advertising, it just shows me that, that maybe things aren't entirely figured out as much as maybe they're letting it seem. And all of that said, I actually think the long-term result of this type of box technology that you plug into the TV, like the future's already set. And the future is that those boxes are going to go away because it's all going to be inside the TV itself. And so we saw in 2016, Roku TVs represented about 13% of smart TV sales, meaning that Roku was the operating system powering those TVs. And that is definitely the right way to go. It leads to different um, revenue options. I think it's fascinating, but it's still a tough position, and 13% isn't quite so dominant. Yeah, and I, I just I don't get it because I can't distinguish Roku from say Fire TV from Amazon, Apple TV, even my PlayStation Four, which I use a lot to watch TV and, and access entertainment apps. I and I, I totally agree with Aaron. I, it's, at some point, this is all built in. Even even the video game companies say you know the era of the console itself is probably going to be ending soon. The next generation of consoles is going to be built right into the smart TV. And so Roku is just a hardware, essentially a device. Like a portal to all your favorite entertainment apps. I don't understand where the value there is going to be created. Yeah, I'm not saying Roku can't be successful, but I, I was thinking about this. It feels like an apt comparison, at least. Like when GoPro went public and we saw in their S1 that they knew they were a hardware maker, but really that the light at the end of the tunnel was becoming more of a media company, monetizing content and whatnot. I just feel like that's that's kind of what Roku's trying to do here. And I'm not saying they can't do it, but clearly GoPro has had a lot of trouble making that leap. And in, in given where Roku is, you know, at this time and place in the market with all of these all of these competitors out there, it's a very difficult transition to make. And as an investor, I think you got to hold the burden of proof on them until they prove otherwise. In the long run, the ultimate differentiator is exclusive content, whether it's exclusive video apps or games. And I just have a hard time seeing Roku do that over someone like Apple. So we we should not expect the CEO of Roku to come out and say we're never going to lose money again. <laughs> well, they're they're not <laughs> they doing made so a, hot right now. They, made, they never make money. <laughs> That's the problem. Solid third quarter report from McCormick. The spice maker sales rose nine percent and profits were higher than expected. Uh, pretty good guidance too, Jason. Hey, I just used McCormick spices last night, Chris, as I was making pizza at home for the kids. <laughs> I mean, I love the value proposition these guys communicate in their products. They basically like say that their products represent. 10% of the cost of the food that you're eating, yet 90% of the flavor. So, I mean, that right there tells you everything. Is They, they really are responsible for pretty much everything that's going on your table or, or that stuff that you're buying in the restaurant. And I think that what we've seen in the past few months, there was a lot of concern with McCormick as they announced uh, the acquisition of RB Foods, which was the French's and Frank's properties. They've closed that acquisition, and uh, everything has gone through relatively smoothly. There are some downsides in the near term. It has added some debt to the company's balance sheet. It dings their credit rating a little bit. And I think that's where the concern maybe came in. 
Uh, bigger picture, though, I think the acquisition made perfect sense. It's right in their wheelhouse. I think it helps them uh, gain more of a global presence and leverage that cost structure, which will ultimately help boost margins down the line. And you're looking at a market that is going to continue to grow slowly but steadily. Euromonitor projects 5% growth in the space through 2021, and McCormick is always getting a pretty good share of that uh, year in and year out. I mean, I defy you to look in your pantry at home and not find at least one or two McCormick products in there. So, all in all, a very well-run business, a good track record of growing earnings and dividends. It's one we have on the watch list in MDP, and we're really uh, a little bit more concerned with evaluation than anything. You got it on the watch list, so I'm guessing you were hoping for a bad quarter, because the stock bumped up about 5% on this report. I'm not going to lie, Chris. I was hoping it (laughs) would go in the other direction. Coming up, a reminder that some birds don't actually fly high. We'll explain. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Matt Argusinger, Jason Moser, and Aaron Bush. Our usual man behind the glass, Steve Broido, still recovering from having his tonsils out. Rick Engdahl, producer of Motley Fool Answers and Rule Breaker Investing, helping out behind the glass. Also behind the glass with us this week, longtime listener Drew Morris. In hey, for a visit. Hey, Drew, Thanks welcome. for hanging out, Drew. Shares of Thor Industries up nearly 10% this week after hammering home strong earnings in the fourth quarter. See what I did there, Manny? Ah. <laughs> the RV maker stock hitting a new all-time high. Yeah, millennials are into RVs. Apparently, yeah, who, they are. Who knew? Who knew? But that's that's what they're saying, and maybe it's true, because unit sales for Thor up more than 50% in both their main towable and motorized segments. Um, part of that's they bought they made an acquisition about a year ago. That's helping. But still... Uh, backlog of orders up more than a hundred percent, and it wasn't mentioned in the release. And I don't think Thor does a conference call, but uh, you know, I'd have to believe that lower gas prices are having somewhat of an impact on the RV industry. I mean, in, and I looked at it. So, gas gas prices peaked in 2012. They've fallen about fifty percent since then. And really, 2012, 2013 was the sort of inflection point for Thor's business, where where sales really started taking off. So you can see. A fuel-sensitive vehicle like an RV, obviously, that's that's a major consideration. But but I have to say, the growth looks great. They have a growing dividend. Stock is less than twenty times earnings. I'm 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 not an RV expert. I'm I'm not a millennial either. But I have to say, <laughs> stock looks interesting right here. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that about the gas prices because I was wondering about that. I mean, given what we talked about earlier with American Airlines and the airline industry in general, and part of the bull case for that industry is. The price of oil being lower today than it was a few years ago, and possibly staying lower. And you know, if Thor Industries, among others, is trading at a pretty low multiple, if gas prices aren't going anywhere, that's part of the. Book that, that's right. I mean, one one we're seeing the effect of what a potential secular decline in oil prices and therefore fuel prices can have across many many industries. It's pretty underappreciated, I think. Roku was not the only closely watched IPO this week. Rovio Entertainment, the maker of the popular video game Angry Birds, went public. And after a slight pop, shares ended up flat on opening day. And at one point, Aaron, Rovio was trading below its IPO price. That's yeah. I mean, if if Roku left money on the table, did Rovio just do a bad job of pricing their own IPO? Uh, I mean, it actually seems like they did a decent job of pricing the IPO, because this is more what we should be seeing. Um, I mean, I like that we're seeing another gaming company go public, but 
I mean, when you when you look at it, Rovio is far weaker and far smaller than the other gaming companies that we're used to looking at, Activision, EA, Take-Two. Um, I mean, revenue is growing about 30% year over year. The business is profitable. Um, so it is. it actually is a pretty good business. Um, but in terms of the brands itself, this really is just Angry Birds, 100%. Unless you're into Fruit Nibblers or a couple other games that they have, it's all it's all Angry Birds. Fruit Nibblers. What is, <laughs> I what, know it's your favorite. Yeah. What if I told you there was a <laughs> second it. Angry Birds movie coming in 2019? Does that get you interested in the stock? I don't know if that in and of itself gets me interested in the stock. I think the fact that they're able to take this gaming franchise and blow it up to a point to where literally over the last six months, over half of the company's EBITDA came from licensing deals, I think that's really impressive. It's a risk, and I don't know if it makes me super excited, because I really want to see them have other brands that that pop. But Well, we were talking during the break about Angry Birds versus sort of other companies. And I'm curious, Maddie, how you view games versus franchises. Because to me, League of Legends is a franchise. Angry Birds, maybe I should be thinking about it as a franchise, but to me, it's it's a highly successful just m- mobile game. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think a great video game has several franchises, right? But hey, there are, I mean, gaming companies, Rovio's one. I think for a long time, King Digital, like Candy Crush was it for them. It was like 95% of revenue and profits. But it can work if you really can blow out the franchise and be successful. But I think down the road, you got to have a second or third act. Otherwise, it gets really hard. All right, just a couple minutes left. Let's get to the stocks on our radar this week. Aaron Bush, you're up first. What are you looking at? I'm looking at a smallish company called Q2. Um, right now, most small and medium-sized banks completely lack the skills to create digital platforms, um, even though their customers, the individuals, and, and companies are just looking for digital touch points for everything. Um, so, Q2 helps these banks solve the problem. They maintain a digital banking platform that they sell to all different banks, um, make money based on how many people use it, how many services the bank opts into. Um, the company is growing quickly, strong retention, strong upsell potential. So I think there's something interesting here. And the ticker? QTWO, Q2. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Uh, yeah, one that I initially researched and bought for my real money portfolio that I ran uh, here at The Fool for a number of years, uh, a company called Massimo, ticker M-A-S-I. Uh, they are in the business of pulse oximetry, Chris, and that is not the band that just headlined at the 930 Club. That is an actual line of work. It focuses on measuring uh, patients' pulse levels and oxygen levels in their blood. So, they have a nice razor and blade model. Uh, very good job in protecting their technology. So, looking at, looking at that for the, uh, the watch list on MDP. Maddie, what are you looking at? Well, we talked about the airlines earlier, and if you know if you if you believe this shift is happening, and I think it is, you might want to buy a basket of the airlines. But I'd say the best of the best to me looks like Delta Airlines, uh, D A L, uh, solid balance sheet, the less unionized workforce of all, of all the four, good management, returning capital shareholders via dividend buybacks, nine times earnings. If if Delta Airlines gets a market multiple, you know, not a not a high multiple, just a market multiple, it's a double. From here, so and I think that's the case for a lot of the airlines. But Delta looks like the strongest and the safest to me. As a general rule of thumb, do you think the airlines, as a group, are cheap right now, despite uh, what uh, Doug Parker at American is saying? I still, I think they're very, very cheap, and that's despite also Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett buying them over a year ago or about a year ago. All right, Jason Moser, Aaron Bush, Matt Arkinson, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Been a busy week for Facebook. Up next, best-selling author David Kirkpatrick analyzes how Mark Zuckerberg is handling inquiries about Russia and his own presidential aspirations. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. 
All right, before we get to David Kirkpatrick, I want to say thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, your life in general. Well, Rocket Mortgage, they give you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple. It allows you to fully understand all the details and be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. And when you're doing a mortgage, that's all you want. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. There's an online world where I am king of a little website dedicated to me with pictures of me and a list of my friends and an unofficial record of the groups that I'm Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The social network is very much in the headlines these days. And here to help us make sense of it all is David Kirkpatrick. He is the founder and CEO of Techonomy, and he's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Facebook Effect, the inside story of the company that is connecting the world. And he joins me now from New York. David, thank you so much for being here. Good to be here. Facebook is facing, I think it's fair to say, increased scrutiny over election-related Russian ads. And according to reports, at least 3,000 ads uh, were placed on Facebook by a Russian company that was trying to influence the election. And for months, Mark Zuckerberg denied that Facebook played any role in influencing the election. And now he is got a he's singing a new tune. He's turning over records to Congress, announcing yeah. changes to the way political ads will be placed on Facebook. Uh, what do you think so far of the way that Zuckerberg is handling these accusations? Well, actually, I think he's handling the accusations as well as anybody could. I think he's, in some abstract sense, he's handling it all very well. In fact, his initial denial about the whole thing, his statement that it's a crazy idea that fake news on Facebook could have had any impact on the election was said to me on stage at the Techonomy Conference last November, the day after the election. I had the good fortune to be interviewing him on stage uh, right after all of us had received this shocking result, and uh, he was at the time quite completely dismissive. Interestingly, uh, yesterday he basically said um, it was a mistake to have said that um, the day after the election, that he should not have been so dismissive, um, and obviously there's a problem. Uh, he has been leading up to that sort of thing for some time. And, and you know, the, the fact that the Washington Post revealed just the other day that President Obama took him aside less than two weeks after he said that crazy idea comment and, and said to him, hey, man, there's a real problem here. And Obama was getting these, this information from the intelligence agencies, etc. That must have really turned Zuckerberg's head. Uh, in a big way, because who wouldn't have their head turned when the president of the United States says, you don't understand how your own company is working and democracy, kind of a historic conversation and a very disturbing one for Zuckerberg. And if you look at the chain of events that happened subsequently, you know, that was November, mid-November is when, or little toward late November is when Obama sensibly had this conversation with Zuckerberg, and I'm sure that's accurate. Um, By February... Zuckerberg had so completely stepped back and rethought what Facebook was all about that he published a 5,700-word essay on the importance of community in the world and Facebook's 
centrality to helping the world have more community. And that essay that he published was a historic essay in itself and already was taking some very different uh, points of view than some of the things he had said to me on stage at Techonomy and was already starting to take more responsibility for this idea that Facebook had to sustain and create the, the capability for healthy community, both at the micro and the macro level in the world. And um, it's worth anyone who's interested in this to go back and read that very long but very detailed and highly idealistic uh, document. But in there, he did not specifically acknowledge that fake news on Facebook had had a problem, you know, in the election, etc. In the meantime, I think between work done by um, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the press, it's become quite clear that there was a real problem. And, you know, now Facebook has not only acknowledged that there were the, they did their own forensic investigation and found these 3,000 accounts that Russian uh, entities paid over $100,000 to use to place advertising on fake news topics around the election. And they've turned over those ads to both Congress and the Mueller investigation. So in that sense, Facebook has directly cooperated into the investigation into manipulation of the election. Um, and just one final thing, Zuckerberg uh, last week uh, announced a set of concrete steps that Facebook was going to take, uh, not just in the United States, but globally to attempt to identify uh, and suppress fake news when it emerged in electoral situations. And he said they were going to hire more people, they were going to beef up their algorithmic software approach to uh, detecting and removing these things, and just generally take the whole matter very much more seriously. And, you know, it is a problem globally. It's not just the United States. And the more we learn every day about the extent of Russian manipulation of during the election, the more complex it appears. You know, this is a story that, uh, as we've just been talking about, really started in 2016, has built slowly, and has gathered a lot of steam over the last couple of weeks, to the point where I should probably timestamp this interview that you and I are talking on Thursday afternoon. Um, the One of the stories that came out this morning is that uh, some nice people at the United States Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee would like to talk to not just Facebook, but Google and Twitter as well about the election. I'm glad you mentioned the the thing that Zuckerberg said about hiring more people, because over the last 24 hours, every analyst I've talked to or watched on financial television in reference to this issue has said the same thing, and it goes something like this. To fix this, Facebook is going to have to hire thousands more people, and from an investing standpoint, that is absolutely going to hurt their gross margins. Knowing what you know about Mark Zuckerberg, do you think he is approaching this like, this is an issue we have to fix, the costs be damned? Or does he have one eye on fixing it and one eye on what, to this point, have been some really nice gross margins? Well, they're the best margins of any comparably sized company in history. But um, I think it's too early to answer that question. I think you know one of the more interesting things, and, and actually a critique that I had about the essay he published 
about creating, it was called Creating Global Community um, in February. I think that's what it was called. There was something about global community. Uh, one of the real critiques I had about it was that he made all these very, very high-minded statements, but did not say anything about what it would cost Facebook to make these changes and whether or not they were willing to sacrifice page views and advertising revenues in order to achieve these idealistic goals. And he has still not directly uh, addressed that, except in the statements he made about hiring more people, beefing up the algorithms, making a more global effort, clearly there was cost involved, and there will be extensive cost. I mean, I do think... I'm not an investor in Facebook. I've always very scrupulously avoided doing that, even though I could have made a lot of money because I've seen this company's uh, prospects for a long time. If I were an investor, I would definitely be asking myself right now, and, and to be honest, it's not just around electoral interference. Given the scale of the social footprint of Facebook and also I would say Google, and soon we will see Amazon entered into this discussion in various ways. Given how almost certainly problematic it is going to be seen by governments all over the world that these companies have acquired so much power and are so susceptible to abuse, how much is it going to cost any of these companies, and particularly these three, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, to take the ongoing remedial efforts that they, by definition, and necessarily are going to have to take for the foreseeable future, and what what is the or just quickly what is the argument that it might actually increase confidence in the services and therefore cause people to spend more time there and, and in, in the long run increase page views and allow them to make more money, or is it necessarily going to involve costs that will cut into the bottom line and cause them to make a lot less money. We don't know, but it's a critical question that investors who have basically bid these companies to the moon on the assumption there is nothing stopping them have never asked before. Do you have a sense of what Zuckerberg's North Star is for dealing with issues like this? Does he have... His North Star does not have to do with profit. And that's something that you have to be extremely cautious about as an investor, is that Zuckerberg did not do this for the money. If you read his, and this is one reason you really need to read that essay to get a sense of the sheer unadulterated idealism that's at the base of his viewpoint about what he's really doing. Um, in the end, in my opinion, he cares more about Facebook having a positive impact on the world than on it having a positive impact on the pocketbooks of his shareholders. Now, he would never say that. He would never. He would probably object to that being said. Luckily, he has Sheryl Sandberg, whose primary job is to you know look after the revenues and the profits. But um, if push comes to shove and it's a choice between one and the other, I have absolutely no doubt that Zuckerberg will choose social responsibility over profit. And I admire him for that, by the way, and I think that's the right approach he should have, and I think it's 
it's something we in society should be relieved that he does have because of the sheer social footprint, the scale of the footprint that this company has. But it's a, it's a, it's a cause for extreme caution on the part of investors who are looking at this from a long-term point of view. He's been doing a bunch of traveling around the United States, leading some to suggest that he uh, has presidential aspirations. Do you put any credence in those suggestions? I doubt it. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think so. My, my gut is that he doesn't want to be president anytime soon for a lot of reasons. I certainly don't. I can tell you right now, even if he wants to be president, he's not going to run anytime soon. That I can say with certainty. He, he wants to have a positive influence on the world, but I think he is much more focused and, and, and expects to remain focused on how Facebook is the vehicle for that than being distracted by something like political uh, office. Why do you think that is? Well, for one thing, I, I honestly think Facebook already, in, in running Facebook could be said already to be a more powerful position than being president of the United States. If you look at its 2 billion members globally and the fact that it has all the effects we're describing here in literally every free country on the planet, it really almost every country on the planet except for North Korea, you know, and few countries like Turkey, Iran, Russia, where it faces various forms of repression. But, you know, Facebook running Facebook is an extremely gratifying and influential and powerful role to have in the world when it has become the world's leading platform for communications. So don't you know that's not a minor matter and and in his view if you don't forget he also expects Facebook to really head towards all 7 billion that's his aspiration. He wants it to be a platform for everybody, which is another reason why he knows he has to solve these problems because if it's seen as detrimental to society he won't achieve that goal. Um, so I don't think for him, actually, despite what anybody might think, being president is such a big, you know, step up. Uh, and, and I also think that he can't really run anytime soon because Facebook has too much power algorithmically over the information flow for citizens in the United States and other countries. And if he were to run, it would put in an enormous amount of attention onto this reality that he could almost, in effect, get himself elected. And that would not be seemly, and it would force a lot of regulatory scrutiny that he is desperate to avoid. Facebook, I'm hooked on Facebook. It's more than a want, it's more than a need. I'd shrivel up and die without my many feet. Take a look. You're Coming up, more with David Kirkpatrick. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Take a look on Facebook, book, 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 book. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill talking with best-selling author David Kirkpatrick. Facebook has this new deal with the NFL where they're going to get access to exclusive highlights. Uh, they recently tried to pay $600 million for the rights to stream cricket matches from India, and they lost out to Fox. 
couple of weeks ago on the show, uh, we had Andrew Brandt from Sports Illustrated, and one of the things he said was that Facebook, Apple, these big tech companies, they're absolutely going to start bidding on the major sports in the United States in a big way. Do you see this NFL deal right now with Facebook as just sort of the tip of the iceberg? Oh, totally. I mean, Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, YouTube as part of Google, um, possibly even including Snap uh, and, and others. These are becoming the primary media platforms. They are by far the richest media companies. Therefore, if they were to determine that it really is to their advantage to buy sports rights, they will be able to outbid anyone. Uh, I don't think Facebook yet is determined enough. I mean, $600 million was a lot to bid for the cricket uh, rights in, uh, in or, or whatever it was. Was it cricket? Yeah, in, in, in India. Um, they could have gone much higher. I mean, it, it's not, they have a lot of priorities. It's not their only priority or their top priority. Uh, and I would actually expect Amazon to get there a lot sooner than Facebook, given the things they've already done in production of television. Um, but these are the companies with the wealth and the aspirations to carry the content that we want to watch, and they will win unless government tells them they can't. All right, last question, then I'll let you go. Um, aside from Facebook, uh, from your Techonomy office in New York, what what is going on right now in technology that is of interest to you personally? It could be a specific company, it could be a specific type of technology, or just some sort of trend. What are you curious about these days? Well, I think the most interesting thing happening, I think there's two things in tech that are most interesting. One is the power of these companies, which we've just been discussing, and how society decides to address that. That is the number one most interesting thing to me right now, especially because I wrote a book about Facebook. But the other thing, which actually ends up being related, is the, the influence of artificial intelligence in society and who wins and who loses as it takes over more and more parts of our world. And, and the related question of what its impact will be on employment. Uh, I happen to think a very interesting piece of that is that there's a very strong case to be made, which the Wall Street Journal uh, argued in a recent major front page piece and which I've written about uh, in separate places, um, that it very well may be that as AI gets deployed more and more parts of society, it creates more employment than it destroys, even though something like truck driving might go away as self-driving cars um, replace it, self-driving trucks. Um, there are so many ways that we're going to be able to do new things that create new value and increase productivity and give people new ways of achieving results we want to achieve to make society healthier, happier, wealthier, etc. that I think there's a very good chance that the, the combination of people plus artificial intelligence is going to create a lot of jobs. But the meme that is most prevalent now is that jobs will be primarily destroyed by artificial intelligence, and I find that debate fascinating. You can read more from David Kirkpatrick. You can go to techonomy.com. You can also pick up a copy of his book, The Facebook Effect, The Inside Story of the Company That is Connecting the World. David, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up in October, our guests will include best-selling author Derek Thompson and Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Stephen Perlstein. You can check out past episodes of Motley Fool Money and all of our podcasts by going to podcast.fool.com. If you're looking for tips on personal finance, check out Motley Fool Answers. Investing insights and observations from David Gardner? 
We got you covered with Rule Breaker Investing and our daily industry-focused podcasts. Now, that's a lot of deep dives on healthcare, energy, finance, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Just click the subscribe button. You got Motley Fool Podcasts on demand whenever you want, anytime you want. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Rick Engdahl. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah.